This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 167. This episode is brought to you by Acronis. Your files, photos, and documents are probably worth more to you than your computer itself. You will eventually lose data due to hardware failure or accidental deletion. Do you have a rock-solid plan to recover your stuff when it's lost? Or are you just okay with losing stuff? World Backup Day is March 31st, and Acronis True Image is offering a free bonus license of its award-winning backup solution. Protect two computers for the price of one. Visit trueimage.com improve to learn about this bonus license deal. And by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and be sure to enter offer code IMPROVE at checkout to get 10% off. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Improve Photography Podcast. Today you are joined by thousands of photographers all around the world, all sitting down ready to get our our virtual dose of photography knowledge and to talk about today's topics. I am joined by Mr. Nick Page. Hey Nick. How's it going? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Well, <laughs> I, uh, today we are we have a bunch of questions to answer from the the podcast l- listeners on our Facebook group and the first is from Gary Ling Felder, uh, who says we recently talked about focus stacking and how it can be accomplished in Photoshop. And he's wondering if there's also a way to do it in Lightroom. Well, I happen to know a guy who's releasing a product very soon <laughs> yes. uh, about focus stacking on improvephotography.com. So walk us through it, Nick. Well, first of all, thank you, Gary, for setting this up so well. Uh, <laughs> we promise this is a real question. Uh, so I've been working on a focus stacking set of videos. In the videos, I, I walk you through all the way through like shooting it in the very beginning, like how to shoot for it and then how to post process it and a whole bunch of different uh, shooting situations when it's handy, when you need to focus stack. So to answer Gary's question, the answer is no, you cannot do this in Lightroom. Lightroom is really good with working with one file or merging to panorama or merging to an HDR image, but it cannot focus stack. In order to focus stack, you're going to have to go over into Photoshop. So stay tuned for those videos, Gary, because uh, I make it pretty easy. I like to think it once you learn it, it's it's a really easy thing to do. Uh, Photoshop does a really nice job of doing it for you. And so, yes, you cannot do it in Lightroom. You have to do it in Photoshop. Very cool. Tim Evans, who's uh, uh, asking about the Canon T4i, really Canon cameras in general. And yeah. he said he's noticed that the that Canon cameras often oversaturate the red colors, um, even when he's using a custom camera profile um, made with a color checker and doing everything. He just feels like those reds are a little bit oversaturated. Nick, you shoot Canon. And so yes. I'm interested to hear what you say about this. <clears throat> I want to maybe provide a little bit of reason to the discussion before we jump into some technical details. Newer photographers often hear little tiny things like this, and it will convince them to pick Canon or Nikon or Sony or Pentax or whatever, because they heard that you know, uh, that Canon cameras aren't ISO invariant. And so I'm not going to pick that or whatever, um, because you just haven't really shot with a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of different cameras. And so let's make sure as we have this discussion, which I think is interesting, let's not lose sight of the fact that this is 
really just talking about the personality difference between different cameras. Every camera has its own personality. When I switched from Canon to Nikon originally, because I started on Canon, it drove me absolutely nuts for the first six months. I just couldn't stand the look of that that Nikon RAW file. Shot that for a few years, and then I would grab a Canon camera, and I was like, ah, this looks terrible, because uh, yep. it's not what you're used to. You switch to Fuji, and you're like, ah, the sliders don't work the same in Lightroom. Mm-hmm. Every camera has its own tiny personality tweaks. The sliders work differently in Lightroom with every single camera. And so don't lose sight of the fact that we're talking about personality, not like a Mm -hmm. reason to choose a certain camera. Yeah, Majid, who just switched over to the A7R2, he's going through the same things. Like he's not very excited about the colors that he's getting out of it. Um, Every camera just is a little bit different. And so to get back to Tim's question, Canon really is notorious for overexposing and oversaturating the red channel. And I've experienced this myself with all of my Canon cameras, where if I'm like shooting in a situation where, uh, I don't know, I'm doing band pictures and the red lights come on, those blue lights were just fine. But when the red ones come on, boom, I'm like completely blowing out the red channel. And what I mean by blowing out the channel, it means that 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 red channel is getting so oversaturated that I'm actually losing detail, losing all that fine detail, just like it had I overexposed the highlights. I'm losing a bunch of detail in everywhere that it's red. And so if you do that and you go back into Lightroom, sometimes you can save a little bit of that information by desaturating the red channel in the HSL panel or just playing with the white balance, you know, making it more green with your tint. But sometimes like if you overexpose that red channel, you're not going to get that information back just like you blew out your highlights. So some of the things that you can do at the time of shooting to, to hopefully retain all of that detail is all cameras. When you review images, you have the ability to display your uh, your histogram. And there's a couple different histograms that you can display. You can display the RGB histogram, which is just a average of all the different channels. And it's just displayed with a white histogram that is just like brightness. But if you uh, select the the color histogram where it shows the individual color channels, you'll be able to monitor things like that red, that red channel and make sure that you're not overexposing your red channel. The other thing that you can do is shoot in a slightly different white balance at the time of shooting. You know, like if you go in and you change your tint, your custom tint to more green and take out some of that magenta or maybe uh, shoot in a cooler white balance. In theory, you could not overexpose that red channel quite as much and thus retain more of that those red details. Because once you overexpose or oversaturate that red channel, a lot of times you can't get that information back and you're going to get just like blank faces on your band or you're going to get red flowers with zero detail. Um, so it's kind of a challenging thing sometimes, but these are really extreme situations when it happens. Typically, yes, very extreme. Yeah. Uh, yes. A time that it's you're going to be facing it head on. You're shooting a red flower. Like this yep, is the time exactly. that like this is like number one. This is <clears> where it's coming up. If you're shooting a red flower, your frame is pretty much filled with red. And mm-hmm. you have to be careful that you're not blowing out that red channel. So just yep. turn on the RGB histogram that shows the three colors and not just the one uh, brightness histogram, like Nick yep. said, and make sure that red one doesn't touch the far right of the histogram. If it is, 
you can reduce your exposure. You can change your your white balance a little bit. We're going to make some changes until we can get it back down. Another time, though, that this comes up is not so much with the red channel on Canon, but with Nikon cameras and green. Uh, yep. The problem is not that Nikon oversaturates the green. It's that the green never looks quite right on those Nikon cameras. Uh, it that's was my the thing that just drove mm-hmm. me nuts about a Nikon camera for a long time was when I would go somewhere that was just like just green, like in Oregon where there's moss on everything that you can see and you're shooting this waterfall, the greens would just look kind of lifeless on an icon. And then I would shoot next to somebody on a Canon and boom, it was just, that's what it looked like. That was perfect. And you say that you can always bring it back, but sometimes... I just couldn't quite get the greens in an icon camera to look right. Uh, and so for that one situation where everything's super green, moss over everything, that specific shade of green, an icon camera just didn't capture it well. So it's not like one camera just dominates this and all the others are inferior. Every camera has its personality. It's just a matter of knowing these things yeah. and just being able to adapt to it. But again, it's a tiny situation, not a reason to choose a whole camera over this. Cool. All right. Our next question comes to us from uh, Eric Sota. Uh, uh, really just a note here. Uh, the Canon 80D, ATD, I have to, <laughs> it sounds like I'm saying it has attention deficit disorder. The, cam- the Canon ATD um, is, has been announced, looks like a cool camera, and it looks like from the testing at DP Review that it is ISO invariant. I'll remind you what that is if you're not uh, nerdy and looking at this stuff every day. Definitely go check my article on improvedphotography.com about ISO invariants. Uh, we tested, uh, what, like 30 cameras. Uh, mm-hmm. We had people in the community test and then they sent in sample images to me and, and I have a list there of what cameras are and are, and are not um, ISO invariant. All ISO invariants means is it doesn't matter if you set the ISO in camera or if you change it in Lightroom or Photoshop, the file turns out exactly the same. So let's say I set my shutter and aperture, they're fixed. They don't change during this whole experiment. I go out to take a night photo. I'd never change my ISO or my uh, aperture and shutter. But the ISO, I, I leave at 100. When I leave it at 100 and I'm taking a night photo of the stars, well, those stars are going to be black. It's not going to show you anything in the photo uh, because we didn't have the ISO up high enough to gather enough light to expose the stars. But I take that dramatically underexposed file in Lightroom and then I crank up the exposure. Well, that resulting file looks exactly the same as if I had shot it mm-hmm. at whatever 3200 ISO. And so the right. benefit of ISO invariance is uh, when you're not really sure, when you're balancing noise and and exposure, you can just leave it lower than you need it and then fix it later. And it is something that I use every once in a while, especially with night photography, and I'm not quite sure how far to push it. But again, it's kind of a small thing. Canon cameras, none of them are ISO invariant until this Canon ATD. I haven't tested it myself, but we're hearing from DP Review that it's ISO invariant, uh, which is interesting. It was, so when we were first talking about ISO invariance, I was like, eh, what's the point? I mean, granted, you can purposely underexpose and ensure that you're never going to blow out your highlights and then bring it up to the proper exposure. But I was like, you know, it, it there's not really a, a very obvious use for that. 
But then after kind of looking at some of the examples and stuff there, I got, I kind of rethought my thinking on this and there's a huge benefit to that. And the huge benefit is that when you, you take your photo, like in a landscape um, situation and you boost your shadows, those shadows are going to be so much cleaner if your camera is IS does this ISO invariance, because if you take my Canon 5D Mark III and you boost the shadows five or six stops, the quality is going to be gross. It's just going to be very obscenely gross. But if you do it with like, you know, a Nikon D810, aren't those ISO invariants as well? Yes, it is. Um, those shadows are notoriously cleaner than my particular camera. And the reason for it is because of this ISO invariance. Um, so when I, when you boost one of these ISO invariant cameras, when you boost the shadows up five stops, really all you're doing is increasing the ISO, which is a much better result than taking an, you know, my camera and boosting an underexposed photo by five stops. So you're going to end up in those situations getting much cleaner shadows um, than if you had, you know, like a Canon 70D, which the shadows would be gross if you boosted, boosted them by six stops. But you can do that um, with these ISO invariant cameras and give much cleaner results. So that to me is pretty exciting. I'm hoping that that translates into a Canon 5D Mark IV that is also ISO invariant. That would be exciting for me. Uh, but we will see. I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see that as well. It led a couple people to speculate if Canon maybe didn't make the sensor in the ATD yeah. uh, mm -hmm. if they're using a Sony sensor because all the cameras that uh, mm. all the camera companies that are using those Sony sensors seem to be ISO invariant. And so I'm curious, but I haven't looked at an, into it enough to see. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, that's kind of an interesting one. But for uh, for today's segment, we want to talk a little bit uh, more about two two very interesting topics. First, a little bit about backup. Uh, and this kind of comes from another question that we got from the community this week. Someone was interested in getting a RAID system, uh, which is basically you're bonding more than one hard drive together and making it work as a single drive. Once you have taken enough photos that they don't all fit on your computer's internal drive, you've got to figure out what to do. Now, what most people do here is they say, hmm, it costs 50 bucks now to get a one terabyte hard external hard drive. I'll put some of my photos on that and some of my photos on the internal drive of the computer. Don't do it. Please don't for your own sake. Don't do it. As soon as you have photos in more than one place, I promise you're going to end up with a headache like crazy in Lightroom. All of your photos need to reside on the same drive. And then you're going to keep Lightroom a lot uh, cleaner. Yes. Yeah, so I can, I can jump in on this because okay. that is exactly my situation. I have, <laughs> you know, I have my intern, I have two, two internal hard drives. One is like my big storage drive. The other one is my fast SSD working drive. My photos are, are too many to fit on those internal ones. So I also have an external drive that has my old catalog on it. So now I, I'm up to three hard drives. And then like my, uh, I still can't quite fit everything onto those. So I have like my other, other hard drive that has like some of my video projects and stuff mm -hmm. and trying to organize everything through those three drives is a nightmare. It is a headache. And no matter how organized I think I'm being 
a month later, I look back and I'm like, what was I doing? Yeah. Like, you know? And so, yes, having them all in one place would be a much simpler way to go for sure. So the way that you do this is you're going to have to have some kind of raid system. And you know this, Nick, but this uh, listener was asking. So I have, I the one that I chose is the Drobo 5D. That's a very, very popular choice among photographers. It's reasonably inexpensive, especially compared to some of the other options that are out there. And you can fit up to five, six terabyte drives in this thing. Nice. So, I mean, you're going to have your work cut out for you to be able to fill this. And you can put in smaller drives, two terabyte, three terabyte, four terabyte, one terabyte. So whatever you have, you you can put in there and then it's best to, you know, buy drives that are made for a raid. But we can talk about that at another time. Uh, but the But the real reason that I like the Drobo 5D is this. Often when you buy these, uh, people are tempted to get a NAS. A NAS is a network attached mm-hmm. storage. NAS equals slow, period. <laughs> it's just slower. Um, and, you know, some are faster than others. Some are actually pretty decently fast, but they're not going to be as fast as something that you can run off USB 3 or Thunderbolt is even better um, because. They just have much faster transfer rates. I'm talking about the cord that connects from this bonded hard drive to your computer. Um, And if we can make that Thunderbolt or USB 3, whichever your computer has, it's going to run so fast. My Drobo runs fast enough that when I'm editing video, and video is extremely demanding, I can have the videos on the Drobo and the project on my on my internal hard drive and it accesses it no problem i i can run 1080p video like butter no problem nice. and that's you you just can't do that real well on a nas the benefit of a nas network attached is that you could access uh you know you could have your laptop in the living room and you you access your nas wirelessly or you could be across the country and if you have it set up right you could access your nas so there are real nice benefits to the nas but for photographers especially where lightroom is pretty slow right now i i would really push you to something that's not network attached but you do want something that that's going to be able to raid these these hard drives together so Mm -hmm. synology makes some great products for this as well as drobo The real question here is reliability. You're going to hear more reports about uh, failures with Drobos because there are a lot of them. And so there are a lot of people uh, uh, who have issue. I've been running mine, I think now for three years, I think is is when I got mine. Um, And I have had two times where I had issues. One tech support fixed it for me. And the other was a major problem. And I had to start from scratch. When you get these Drobos, though, the thing is, they uh, it runs on what we call a proprietary RAID. And if you haven't bought one yet, that probably sounds scarier than it really is, because what it means is Drobo, the company, puts special software on the box that only they can read. And so if your Drobo, the, the case dies, you could take out those hard drives and pop them in a new Drobo, and you're set to go. You're good, no problem. But you have to have another Drobo. If you take your Drobo and you want to move over to Synology or something because your Drobo's dead, um, then you're out of luck. You're going to have to get a new Drobo enclosure 
to move it over and then you mm-hmm. can move it to Synology. Now, th- so that seems scary to people and people say, oh, I don't want to get locked into a proprietary system, which, you know, may be reasonable, but it really isn't a problem. And the reason it's not a problem is you should never, ever buy one RAID or one Drobo, one Synology device. You always have to buy two. Because one is your where all of them are, and the other one is your backup. Just because they're on a RAID does not mean it's an adequate backup, even if two of the drives on there have the <clears> file. <throat> you need it in two separate places. And so if one Drobo were to die today, I would just get my backup Drobo and t- connect that to the computer. And then from the computer over to a Synology or whatever else, if I wanted to move to a different system, you know, just copy the files over. No problem. So you don't have to worry about the proprietary RAID if you're doing this correctly in the first place and you have two of them because you're going to need one as your main drive and one as your backup. Don't just get one um, and call it good. Uh, or else you could get locked into it and you don't have an adequate backup. You're going to need something that can hold that much storage as well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, it does. And something to mention is that having two of those systems, that's an investment. That's it's a big. serious investment. That's, I mean, so like if you have two Drobo Drobos and like six, you know, how many hard drives in them, you're talking several thousand dollars or at least yep. a couple thousand dollars. And that's, we spend so much money on our camera gear and we t- don't take a whole lot of um, we don't spend a lot of whole, a whole lot of money saving all of those photos that we've paid so much money to acquire. So it, it makes sense to really invest in the backing up of your of your photos. But at the same time, it hurts. It hurts really yep. bad to because I haven't pulled the, the plug. I haven't pulled the trigger on one of these raid systems yet, but I, I really need to. It would solve so many issues for me. But if you're like me, I have a whole bunch of money already invested in all these external hard drives. And so, you know, it's it's tough. You're going to invest your money somewhere as far as storage goes. It's just um, it's wise to jump into a system that can grow with you rather than you you constantly growing out of it like I am. So I recommend people getting into one of these raid systems early. That way, you know. You don't have to abandon all of these external hard drives like I would have to in order to move over to one because you're going to get stuck in whatever you start. So you might as well start with something good. Yeah. So and one nice thing about this is uh, Drobo and other companies. This isn't like an ad for Drobo. I don't really care which one you choose. It's just the one that I use and and I've actually had really good success with. Uh, and I love that it, that it's so fast. Anyway, um they they make smaller ones as well. So you can get the Drobo Gen 3, which is a, a four bay. So you can put four drives in this thing and it only costs 250 bucks for the enclosure. And then you say, ah, but now I've got to fill this thing with drives and drives can get pricey. So what I would recommend there, and there are drawbacks to this, and I, I'll talk about some of those. Take those external hard drives that you already have. Uh, yeah. You know, everybody's got some of those. Inside that external hard drive, that external drive that you have there is just a normal drive. It's just a regular drive in there. So just grab a little screwdriver and unscrew it and you'll see you got a regular drive. And then all you do is just, I mean, literally you just slide it in the Drobo and poof, you now have your storage in there. Um, 
I, I mean, it's it's beautiful for that. So you could take if you got a couple, ex, you know, three external hard drives around the house, pop, pop, pop and stick them in there. Now, there's a drawback to that being that um, you those drives, those regular drives are not made to be run continuously in a RAID array. And so they're going to fail quicker. Um but if it's what you got, and as long as you have a backup, go ahead and do it. I've done it, I, and I didn't have any problems. I think it's okay to do. Just recognize okay. that you are you are facing a little bit more of a risk. But again, if you got a backup, what does it really matter? If something goes wrong, you're okay. You got your backup there. And so this doesn't have to cost you know thousands of dollars to get started. The system that I have now with multiple very large up to six terabyte drives was pricey a couple thousand bucks but you you can start small for three hundred dollars you can be into a drobo and you and you could be up and running and so mm-hmm. it's something that like nick said it's you want to do this before your hard drive is totally full decide where you're going to go which direction you're going to go uh, because yeah we did invest a lot into these photos and so make sure you're taking care of them and not strewn across a bunch of external <laughs> drives and then you're losing years worth of work uh, just because you were kind of careless with it. Very true. Very true. All right. So that's all we can say uh, about the <laughs> about the Drobo. We want to get along and talk a little bit more about storm photography in next segment. But before we do that, we want to thank Zenfolio for sponsoring this episode of the Improve Photography Podcast. Zenfolio is an awesome company. Some very good people there uh, that make that make it easy for you to make to put your website. Uh, for your photography or really anything else, but it's specially made for photographers. It can advertise your services, you know, have an about me page in your portfolio and keep it really simple and it's inexpensive to get started. Or you can sell your photos on there. You can mm-hmm. upload galleries on there so that you can go to a shoot and send a private gallery to a client. I mean, it, you can really build a very robust system for your business that, that will really do what you need it to do Uh, as a photographer there are benefits and drawbacks to every system out there the one that i really think zenfolio is just knocking out of out of the park with is e-commerce they do an excellent job of helping photographers to sell their work right on on the website Uh, zenfolio is powerful and beautiful and it's been voted number one by photographers for three years in a row they have 24 7 customer support you can protect your work with passwords watermarking and size restrictions it's mobile responsive there are a lot of very nice things to do and you can get started for just five bucks a month start a free trial today with no credit card required when you decide to sign up for zenfolio make sure to use the offer code improve and that gets you 30 bucks 30 percent off your subscription to show your support of the Improve Photography Podcast. And we thank Zenfolio for their support of the show. Uh, they've been voted number one by photographers three years in a row. And also by Squarespace. Squarespace is a company that I love. They make my photography portfolio. Uh, mine is at photographyidaho.com. If you want to go see uh, what a Squarespace website can look like, uh, you can go take a look at my at my portfolio. I like it because their plans start at just $8 a month. It's inexpensive to get started. Super easy to use. The thing that I think Squarespace does really well is gorgeous templates. The sites look very good. And Nick, I know you're using a Squarespace website as well. I went on there today just before we started recording, and I noticed you've already updated with recent images. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they make it so easy to keep uh, your website updated that you really have no excuse not to update your website. Um, I, I've been using the store function quite a lot, you know, selling workshop dates and stuff like that. It works really well. Um, I, I really like Squarespace just for the ease of use. I often get asked who makes your website and I'm, I always take a little bit of pride in saying, well, I do. And I use, and I, I spend like zero time on Squarespace. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, no big deal. And you know, it makes the, it makes the photos big, which is kind of important as a photographer. The, the photos are, you know, what the whole website is built around. And it's really easy. It's really easy to update and uh, it works really well for me. Yep. Big photos is big for photographers. That's one that when I looked around at different options, that's the one that uh, finally got me to over the hill and to decide on Squarespace was big Mm -hmm. full screen images that look good. They don't look blurry. They'll look nice and sharp. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for improved photography at squarespace.com and enter offer code improve and we thank squarespace for their continuing support of improved photography they've been a long-running sponsor and we really appreciate them well nick you want to talk a little bit about uh storm photography let's hear that so anybody that knows me it's not a surprise that nick is excited that lightning Photography is right around the corner um, in my At least part in of the, the United States. Yeah, yes, exactly. In my little corner of the world, uh, the springtime is a great time for thunderstorms to start rolling through. And so there's several reasons that I love photographing uh, thunderstorms. One is that you just get some of the most dramatic skies you get for the entire year. Even if you don't get lightning, Typically, you'll get, you know, big, billowy, ominous clouds or you'll get rainbows. You'll get awesome sunsets. Even if you don't get lightning, you get really good stuff. And when you do get lightning, um, it only happens a few times a year. And, you know, that those are some of the most dramatic photos I make throughout the entire year. So I'm always like eager when the storm season comes around. So some of the things that I do to kind of help with my lightning photography or my storm chasing is uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time just monitoring storms and weather on my phone. Uh, these kind of storms, like the, the predictions are often wrong and things change really rapidly. Um, so I, I like to use Weatherbug. Um, because it, it gives me an hourly uh, forecast so I can see how things are trending hourly. And also it has a lightning tracking feature called Spark. It'll actually bring up a map and show exactly where every lightning strike it has happened in like the last 30 minutes. So it, it's easy to see the direction that it's going. And, you know, I can kind of stay up to date when, oh, there's a lightning storm and it's right, happening right over here. It's going this way. And another app that I've been using a lot lately is My Radar. My Radar is really nice for just the radar feature. Um, the radar feature in most apps are typically a little bit buggy or a little bit slow or they like you know require a really good cell phone in order to actually function properly but my radar is is really light in that sense it operates really well and uh, it's really easy to read i love i love being able to track the direction of the storm and the reason that's important is because you need to know 
where the storm is going and you have to be able to forecast, okay, it's, it's going Northeast or whatever. And if I go up here, I'm going to be able to photograph it as it's coming over this particular location that I want to shoot. So one of the things that I'm always trying to do is predict where it's going. That way I know where I need to be in order to get a decent shot of it. Because if you just spend the entire time trying to chase it from behind, you're never going to get any good photos because storms travel really fast deceivingly fast because they they operate in straight lines and roads typically don't <laughs> so um, trying to get catch up to a storm is more difficult than it sounds so what i like to do is i like to see where it's going and then i like to get way ahead of it and wait for it to come to me and so i like to try to uh pre-visualize some of the spots that it's going to go and have an idea of where i want to go as far as like, you know, objects or something like foreground elements that I can put in front of this awesome sky that's going to happen. So like I kind of have a list of places in my head uh, in my local area that will work for a good uh, lightning shot. And typically I'm looking for things that kind of break the horizon, like big, tall trees or big, tall buildings or, or in my area, I have big wind turbines that, you know, break the skyline. That way I can either uh, silhouette that against a cool lightning strike, or if a rainbow happens, you know, I can have that rainbow interacting with it. So I'm constantly looking for stuff like that. And I'm also one of the things I try really hard to do and I, I don't always succeed at is I try to shoot it from a distance. I don't want to be like right underneath the storm looking up at it because for one, it's just going to be pouring rain on me and I'm not going to be able to get very many shots without rain on my front element. But when you're shooting wide angle, um, a lot of times it downplays the lightning because the lightning ends up being very small in your frame because you're shooting so wide that it takes up a smaller portion of your frame. So if you can get back a distance away from it and then zoom in on it with like a 200 millimeter lens, you're compressing that scene. And what that's going to do is it's going to make the lightning bigger and more ominous and just fill up more of your frame. So using those longer focal lengths uh, is really, really, uh, it's a good idea for one, it's safer. And for two, you're going to be dry. And for three, you're going to make the lightning look bigger and more impressive. So those are some of the things that I try really hard to uh, keep in mind when I'm getting ready to go out and chase some clouds around. Uh, very cool. Yeah, I'm anxious to to get started on on some storm photography. I've shot lightning a little bit, but I squandered it when I was in southwest Florida. Southwest Florida is the lightning capital of the world. Nice. Um, and I just, I never really got out to the beaches when it, when there was lightning. And so mm. next time there are, there's Absolutely. lightning around, I've got to get out and do some shooting. The problem that I have here is I, I don't have a whole lot of like go to, like I can just quick run out and have kind of a general setup for a landscape when I have cool weather. I need to find more of those spots that are just kind of my go to right. spots when something cool is happening. Because really in your area, uh, when I'm looking at my radar map, you always have lightning there. I'm jealous of you <laughs> because you get a lot of lightning storms throughout the summer. And up here, like we get them in the spring and in the fall. Eh, and the last couple of years have been kind of weak. My first year of photography, which was three years ago, um, we just got tons and tons of lightning storms come through. And, it, you know, I, I just kind of expected that every year, but now it's been kind of lame since. So I'm jealous of you, Jim. Every time I see a giant storm just nonstop going through your area. Rolling right through Boise. 
Exactly. You you have such a nice little cloud funnel down there that it just rolls right through that valley. And, you know, a couple things to keep in mind that I didn't mention is that a lot of times it's it's not only a safety thing, but it's a comfort thing as far as using some kind of remote release, whether you're using like a cam ranger or you're using some kind of remote shutter release. That way you can be in the safety of your car when the lighting gets close and you can have your camera out and, you know, be taking pictures from the safety of your car. Cars aren't that safe, but they're a little bit safer than standing next to a big metal tripod. Um, also, you're going to want lots and lots of lens cloths because with lightning comes rain. And so you need to put a rain cover over your camera and then be right there to, you know, keep wiping your front element and try to keep all that moisture off as much as you can. And another thing that really is useful about using a remote release is that when the, the ambient light gets dark enough, bulb mode is awesome for lightning photography because basically you can just sit there and hold it down until a lightning strike happens. And when it happens, you let go and you got it. Um, the, the hardest thing in the world is daytime photography or daytime lightning photography because your shutter speeds are so much shorter that you can't do that kind of long exposure anymore. You're using shorter exposures, which means that you need to use some kind of intervalometer or something where you're just taking picture after picture after picture, hoping, hoping that a lightning strike happens during one of those short exposures. So yeah, lightning can be really challenging, but it can also be some of the most dramatic photography you do throughout the entire year. Very cool. Well, in every episode, we like to share a doodad of the week some kind of product or resource that we want to recommend uh, that you take a look at. Nick, what do you have for us this week? So Nick just got a new light diffuser, a new speed box. Um, so it's, it's basically a soft box designed for speed lights. It's called the glow Parapop. It's a 38 inch soft box, which is considerably larger than my old speed box. Um, it's really nice because it literally just, um, unfolds in seconds. And then when I want to take it apart, I can simply like release a couple levers, um, wrap a piece of Velcro around it, stick it in a bag and it's, uh, take it apart in a couple seconds. Standard soft boxes. If you've ever had to set them up, take forever, but these are really fast. And the problem that I had with my original speed box was it was just kind of too small. It produced a really hard light. This is a much softer light because it's 38 inches and I'm, I just got it. I'll report back on how it performs, but I can tell that I'm really going to like it. So it is the glow Parapop 38 inch speed box. Very cool. That looks like an awesome product. I'm definitely going to have to take a look at that one. Well, this week I wanted to recommend uh, that everyone take a look at your speed light. Um, I, we have a lot of new listeners coming on to improve photography. And so some of the things that I use all the time over the next couple of weeks, I want to kind of talk about them, even though longtime listeners have heard about it a million times on improvephotography.com, uh, We have a section of the website that's really, really popular called recommended gear. And there pretty much anything you want to, to buy in photography there's going to be a recommendation that we've actually tested out the the things there. If you're buying a camera bag, well, uh, Brian McGuckin and Jeff Harmon have tried out dozens of different camera bags uh, just in the last year, and we'll have recommendations on camera bags there. If you're looking for a lens, 
I spent a year do, making the lens finder there so you can answer five questions and it'll recommend a different lens for you. Uh, but the flash photography one is the one that I want to highlight this week. Don't go buy the Canon and Nikon flash. There are good reasons to buy them. Some people like them. Totally fine if you do. But before you do that, at least take a look at this page and see if this is a good fit for you. Uh, I use, I know Nick uses, and I think all of us on the podcast uh, use the YN560 version 4 flash. For 140 bucks. you can be totally set up like pro quality. I wouldn't have pro- a problem shooting any wedding with this setup of just a basic speed light uh, and a trigger, a wide umbrella. I could... I would have no problem shooting any wedding in the world uh, with just that very basic setup. It's incredible what you can make, and the cost is pretty low. Uh, a lot of people are looking at, you know, maybe I'm going to upgrade my camera and spend $500 there, where really, if you kept the same camera and you learned lighting, wow, mm-hmm. it would take your photography a lot farther. And so that's one that I want to highlight. If you are learning Flash, uh, I would encourage you to check out in the Improved Photography Store. There's a section called The Store right in the menu now that all of our products are there in one spot. Uh, I have Jim Harmer's light r- or uh, Lighting in a Flash. Uh, and that's I use that same basic equipment to walk you through everything you need to know to be competent in flash photography. You'll be learning new things for years, but to get to that competent level where you can make some creative images, you're going to have it. It's a $50 tutorial. Uh, I, it's a couple hours of video, uh, and, and I really think that that's a great place to get started. If you don't have the funds to do that, then at least go to improvephotography.com slash flash hyphen photography hyphen basics. And there I have a 10 page tutorial that kind of walks you through much of the same information just to kind of get your feet wet, uh, when you get started in flash photography. Well, thanks everybody for joining us in this episode of the Improved Photography Podcast, and we will see you in another seven days.